Well, good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to open them up to Psalm 97. Psalm 97 is where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, uh, join me by using a blue, blue pew Bible in front, and you'll find Psalm 97 on page 499. Um, also, just before we get started, uh, if you've been at Grace Church, I'd say probably 20 plus years, there's maybe only a few of us in here who have been here that long, um, you'll recognize the names Ken and Dot Zuber. Um, they're long, long-time members of Grace before they retired down in the Willow Valley area in Pennsylvania. Um, Dot Zuber, at age 86, passed away this past Thursday. Um, so I have uh, really dear memories of them, even from when I was a little kid, kind of wreaking havoc around this place, running around. They were an older couple that just invested in me. I remember going to their home with my family for meals, and they, would, uh, just, they wouldn't let, let me be a little like, punk kid running on the side. Like, they'd sit me down, they'd talk to me, I wouldn't know what's going on. Uh, they may, I don't know if they were great fans of basketball or just did it to support me, but they came to my games, middle school, high school, college, uh, even after they moved away, they heard that in college I had a tournament out in PA and they showed up and watched there. So uh, dear couple at Grace, longtime members, um, and Dot passed away at the age of 86 this past Thursday. So uh, this Tuesday at, and I'm going to say this wrong, but the Volk Labor funeral home on Kindercomac Road in Ordell uh, from 6 to 8 is her wake, followed by a short service at 8 o'clock at that funeral home. So uh, if you would be interested in that, I uh, would encourage you to attend. It's a, uh, it's a bittersweet moment when a faithful servant of the Lord gets called home, and uh, we are celebrating with Dot this morning um, and are thankful for her ministry, longtime ministry at Grace Church. So I want you to think back to the last time you like really anticipated the arrival of somebody in town. Uh, maybe it was a family member that you were just kind of so excited they were coming to visit. So my wife Rochelle from Wisconsin, she came here 2010. Um, I started dating her because she had no friends and uh, just really kind of capitalized on that. If you're a single guy, it's a good route to go. Uh, but what happened was those first couple years she was here, she has a big family back home in Wisconsin and kind of one by one they would come out and visit for a few days. And so Rochelle would get so excited. We did like the tourist thing in New York City just like eight times over and over again. And there was really two things she wanted to do. She wanted to go to New York City and just see the reaction how big it is, and then she wanted to take them to Country Pancake House in Ridgewood, okay? Same reason, see the reaction, how big it is. Like, if you haven't been there, like, I'm still full from, like, five years ago eating there, and so what happened is, uh, like, she, every time, like, before her family member starts to come, you just see this kind of, like, energy starting to pick up in her. Maybe it's not a family member. Maybe it's somebody famous coming to the area. So, like, we're just miles outside of New York. So if someone is good at something, like anything, like eventually they're going to find themselves in New York City, right? Like there's a big audience there. Like if you're good at famous anything, eventually you'll come to New York. So if you're a sports fan and maybe you've been pumped that LeBron's going to come play against the Knicks or the Nets. You love music and your favorite band is coming to play at the Garden. Uh, you love Broadway and your favorite actor just signed on to do a musical. You love to read, and your favorite, favorite author is doing a book signing right here at Bookends in Ridgewood. Um, whoever it is that kind of gets you going, uh, what happens when somebody asks you, like, hey, why are you so excited this person's coming to town? Like, why are you anticipating this so much? You, what will happen is you will naturally just begin to talk about them. You'll, you'll, you'll get into why they're so great and just start kind of listing their attributes, right? So you're a sports fan, and LeBron's coming to the garden, and so you're saying, listen, he's the best player of all time. 
if you're under the age of 30. If you're over the age of 30, you're like, no chance he matches Jordan. And then you can start that debate. But there's this, you know, he's, he's 6'8", he's chiseled, he's the fastest on the court, the strongest on the court, he's the best passer, you can't stop him inside. Like, it would just naturally start to flow out of you, your excitement about the arrival of somebody so that you begin to boast in them. Like, you can't help it at any opportunity when asked. Well, Psalm 97 is going to allow us to boast about God and eventually lead us to talk about a special arrival. Um, We are continuing this morning in our summer series in the book of Psalms. At the beginning of the series, I kind of gave you the road map for how we're going to approach it. And we're picking a psalm in each of the six major thematic categories that we'll put up on the screen again if you haven't been here. There's, there's really all 150 psalms. You could break them down to these six categories. There's praise and thanksgiving and lament and wisdom, confidence, divine kingship. And so, so far this summer, we've done those first three. We've done praise Thanksgiving and lament. And those three make up the majority of the 150 Psalms. Like if you just kind of picked one at random, you're more than likely to find one of those three categories. Uh, But now at this point, like a little past halfway, maybe in the summer, we're going to pivot and start looking at these categories that are less in quantity, but just as powerful and important. And, And Psalm 97 is in the category of divine kingship. A thematic category which spotlights the supremacy of the Lord over all his creation. And so I am really looking forward to this morning because I think I've told you this before, but my favorite part about preaching week in and week out is when I get to a part of the text that just allows me to boast in the person and work of God. Just talk about him, who he is, what he has done. And this week, the whole psalm is just boasting in the Lord. An opportunity to to just see how big God is. And I've become more and more convinced, preaching week in and week out, of how crucial it is that we actually see how big God is. And we're more likely to give him access to every area of our lives and resist the temptation to think we can just kind of keep him bottled up and controlled if we really see how big he is. That God's not just like your Sunday morning thing and then you kind of get out and then you just go through the rest of your week. Like, like, does he have access to all areas of our life? Is he king, not just in here, in this room, is he king on your commute tomorrow morning to work? Is he king tonight when you're watching TV all alone? Is he king when you're out with your friends on a Thursday or Friday night? Is he king as you sit around the dinner table with your family? And and rather than be so narrow in our kind of application in our sermons, the ability to just talk about God and how big he is will do more to apply to our lives than anything else will. And so we're going to preach this a little bit different this morning because I just first want to work our way through this psalm and really just show four aspects of who God is. Just boast about them. And then I want to show how this psalm proved to be a foreshadow to the most powerfully divine arrival that turned the world upside down. So follow along as I read the entire psalm. This is Psalm 97, starting in verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. 
Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. All worshipers of images are put to shame. Who make their boast in worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and is glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. O you who love the Lord, hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous and joy for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, O you righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Okay, four aspects of just God's nature and character. First, he is the sovereign God. So the majority of these divine kingship psalms, they're all right in a row. Psalm 93 to Psalm 100 are all this kind of category, and there's a couple others sporadically throughout the psalms, but they're all pretty much right in a row. Psalm 93 to Psalm 100, and the phrase that kind of ties them all together is, the Lord reigns. Some it has it up front, like in Psalm 97, others in the middle, others at the end, but in nearly all of them you have this phrase, the Lord reigns. It is the central proclamation of kingship. And when you think about it, it is the central proclamation of the entire gospel. The Lord reigns. He is on the throne. He never once gave it up. And he is the sovereign God. It's here that you find the bedrock of all Christian theology. It is the sun around which everything else revolves. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth simply by speaking it into being. And not only that, but he upholds the universe at all times by that word of his power. And God doesn't take naps. And God doesn't need a vacation. We just got back yesterday from a week vacation, like needed it. Like, yes and amen, I needed to get away and then come back charged up. But like, God never says that. God never looks at his calendar. He's like, when can I just take a week off? When can I just get away? He doesn't get bored. God doesn't get confused. He never has a moment where he's indecisive or nervous about what to do. The Lord reigns. If you talk to people, just you know, friends and family that are not uh, believers, and you just start talking about God, oftentimes you get this picture uh, shown of God who, who, yeah, maybe he like is a creator and he created the world, but he kind of just wound up the clock of creation and just sits back and watches it tick. Yeah, he was involved in the beginning, but he's not like that involved in every little area of our lives. He's kind of removed, or he's careless. He's just kind of an observer of all that happens. Um, the problem with that, along with the problem with a lot of views of God, is the Bible. The Bible tells us the exact opposite. That he is so involved in his creation, so purposeful, that not the slightest movement of dust that comes in the sunlight through a window moves unless God ordains it. 
G.K. Chesterton. He's uh, an English author, early 20th century. He, he declares this point in a way that I just absolutely fell in love with the moment I first read it. Follow along this quote on the screen. He writes, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. Can I get an amen? Amen. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. A God that is strong to exult in monotony over his creation. A God who loves saying, do it again. When we believe this deep down in our bones, that the Lord reigns, that the always ruling sovereign God becomes the ultimate source of comfort for us in an uncomfortable fallen world. And affirming the divine kingship of God displays the fact that we believe and live our lives based upon God's word and not just by what we see. Because let's be honest, if we went purely by what we see, we would seriously question whether the Lord actually reigns. All the crap that is out there, All the evil that seeps into every little crack, the sheer quantity and volume of wickedness in the world, let alone the wickedness we are capable of in our own hearts, if that's all we just saw and believed, that would lead you to say, okay, if God is reigning, he's not doing a really good job. And it is unhelpful. It is narrow-minded. It is ludicrous to even claim to believe this about God. And yet, without knowing it, if we made the conclusion that, that God did not exist or was not in control based upon what little we see for a few years that we see it, like how narrow-minded is that? I'm one person For a few years, I'm missed and I'm here today, gone tomorrow, and based what I see, that God must not be in control. Which one's the more narrow view? And just because we cannot determine how or why something occurs, it doesn't mean that that must mean that God's not on the throne. But rather, as his people, we allow this foundational word of God, which has stood the test of time across history and affirms to a person and work of a sovereign God who brings all things about for his good and right purposes, even when, especially when, we can't see it. I was just talking to somebody this morning, walked in. One of her students 
in North Halden, four-year-old, driving around on a little bike in his backyard, got hit and crushed by a tree last night. Things that you would be tempted to see and just go, what's the redemptive work in that? Lord, if you're reigning, you forgot that. A Christian life is far more about saying, I'm going to believe in what I know about God revealed in his word and not purely just about what about I see. And it's no wonder the psalmist follows up by declaring, let the earth rejoice that the Lord reigns. He is in control and one day in his perfect timing, he will arrive and finally restore creation to its perfect state. He's the sovereign God. Second attribute to boast about, he is the awesome God. Um, so Psalm 97 distinguishes itself amongst the others right around it, the other kingship psalms, and that while the arrival of God's presence is something to enjoy, Psalm 97 like, shows its literal awesomeness. It triggers awe, astonishment, this kind of healthy fear when seen and experienced in all of its glory. If you notice in the scriptures, any time a man or woman sees God, like any time they see a manifestation of God's glory, without fail, it comes with terror. Moses in Exodus 19, Isaiah in Isaiah 6, Daniel in Daniel 7, John in Revelation 4, a glimpse of God, God on his throne is always terrifying for those who see it. Like somehow that caricature that we often see of God in like this long white robe and a nice like grandpa beard sitting on a cloud, like I don't think that's what they're seeing when they see the manifestation of its glory because it terrifies them. And likewise, the psalmist under divine inspiration, he says, clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Fire goes before him. His lightnings light up the world. Mountains melt like wax before the Lord. The awesomeness of God, and there will be a day, he says, when there will be no question about how awesome he is, and all people will see his glory. It's a mighty statement for a man who's within the nation of Israel. It connects back to uh, where it all started, when God told Abram that he would be made into a great nation, and through that nation, all the families and nations of the earth shall be blessed. Through Israel, all would know and see God. And just as the sun, in all of its brilliance and power, cannot be stared into or treated lightly without going blind, so the God of the universe should never be taken lightly. He is literally awesome. And so listen, approaching God and the things of God lightly or superficially or carelessly, that doesn't show that you and God are close. It probably reveals that one doesn't really know him at all. The closer we get to him, the more in awe we are, the more brilliant the light shines, the more reverence we have. And here's the, here's the point. The moment that initial fear turns into worship is the moment we realize this big, awesome, terrifying God is also the God of refuge. 
the God who is for us and protects us by his grace. When those two things come together, fear turns to worship. Some of you will recognize the name Jessica Lynch. Jessica was a soldier in the American army who became the first ever woman prisoner of war on March 23, 2003 when Iraqi forces ambushed her convoy and took her hostage. Jessica remained a POW for 10 days until April 1st, when American special forces were tipped off to her location and carried out a rescue mission in the middle of the night. Recalling that night, Jessica said, when she first heard the commotion and gunfire in the darkness and saw the silhouette of people running towards her room, with guns. She was terrified. She was assuming this is going to be the end. This is going to be the day she'd be killed. But it was not until these soldiers stormed this dark room and one approached her in particular, this guy ripped something off his uniform and placed it in Jessica's hand and she put it up close to her eyes and saw that it was the American flag. And it was the moment she realized that this display of power was for her and there to rescue her. And commenting on this moment, Jessica said, I would not let go of his hand. I clenched to his hand because I was not going to let him leave me here. He was going to take me out. So it is with the people of God when he takes hold of us. What is initially fear turns to confidence that this awesome display of power is going to be that which frees us and takes us home. He's the awesome God. Let's keep going. Third aspect. He's the only God. Verse 7. All worshipers of images are put to shame who make their boast in worthless idols. Verse 9. For you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted above all gods. A common thread you'll see throughout the Psalms is the comparison between the one true God and then all the false gods that always overpromise and underdeliver. And it goes without saying that if the previous two aspects of God are true, if God truly is the sovereign one, and God truly is the awesome one, then a natural progression is to proclaim He's the only one. The more we know about God, the more readily we can recognize and expose the cheap imitations of him. Jen Wilkin, uh, an author, if you haven't heard of her, write her name down. She has uh, been uh, especially uh, meaningful for me in her writings over the past year. Uh, she wrote a book called None Like Him. I think she wrote it for women, but I read it and loved it, so I don't care. Um, the, the book was called None Like Him, and it was 10 chapters of just talking about God and how he distinguishes himself from everything else and everyone else in creation. And near the front of the book, she kind of tells us why it's necessary that we read a book that just tells us and boasts about God. And she does so by using a compelling illustration. She said, if your job was to spot counterfeit money, the way to do so would not be to go and research and memorize all the different ways you could fake a dollar bill. Because there are tons of ways to do so. 
And there's always tons of more ways to fake a dollar bill that are coming over and over again. She said, rather, your job would be to to study the real thing so intently, so closely, to memorize it so well, that when a fake one does come across, you'll know it's not real. Because you've studied the real thing. And in the same way, she says, the best thing Christians can do is to study the character and nature of God so well, to be so intent on knowing um, the only real God that when a cheap imitation comes across our plate demanding our worship, we can recognize this is a counterfeit God. This is not the real thing. And when put up against the real thing, idols are exposed to be worthless And they're put to shame. In our day, this not only includes the the gods of false religions, but it includes the cultural gods of fame, of wealth, of sex, and power that have become far more prominent than gods of other religions in America. Things that can be great gifts from God, but make terrible gods themselves. And if God alone is going to stand tall above all other, gods, all other gods on that final day for all of eternity thereafter, we would do well to serve and worship God alone today. Fourth attribute we see in Psalm 97 is that God is the preserving God. The final verses is where the psalmist takes all these attributes of God and now he lays them down on the lives of God's people. And it's in these final verses that he gives his only commands. He gives two. He says, oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. And then he says, rejoice in the Lord, oh, you righteous. You cannot love the Lord and love evil at the same time. Or as Spurgeon puts it, we cannot love God without hating that which he hates. Just as it's not possible to say that you truly love your wife without having an affair at the same time, or while having an affair at the same time, so too the love for the Lord is backed up with a faithfulness to his word. You can't do both. And those are strong words For God's people, hate evil. There's not much the Bible's going to tell you to hate. But he says, hate evil. Don't just avoid it. Don't, Don't just compromise with it. Don't just try and dodge it. Take up arms against it. Don't just play not to lose. Play to win. Be the aggressor. Put that which kills to death. In our own hearts, in our own sins that we are facing and battling, the sins of systematic injustice we see in the world, of racism, of discrimination, hate evil. Take up arms against it. Don't just live with it. Ultimately, all of our actions will be the fruit of what we want most. Action will always flow from our greatest desires, and the only way to avoid evil is to love God more than evil. And it is a heart that is stirred for God and for who he is, a heart that desires fellowship and communion with the Lord and with his people that will ultimately succeed at conquering evil in our own hearts. This is a call to persevere. And I think by putting this there, the psalmist acknowledges that we're going to be tempted to stop believing these things about God. 
We're going to hear stories or we're going to feel things and we're going we're to be tempted to doubt it as we navigate a messy, oftentimes depressing world where we just see and hear negative things and we just see and experience and commit our own sin and it becomes so prevalent and it follows these kind of negative emotions. I had a, a pastor in college um, or he, he came and just spoke at InterVarsity one week, and uh, I don't know if this is completely true, but I think it might be close to true. Uh, he says um, that sin almost always is on the heels of negativity, and he gave really five emotions that generally sin will follow one of these five things. Anger, loneliness, frustration, boredom, and sadness. That generally, if you, if you just kind of took, a, took a, a, a sample of your sin the vast majority is going to come on the heels of one of those things. But we're assured by his word that God preserves the lives of his saints. That God ensures that there's nothing that we're going to face that he doesn't give us the power to resist and overcome by his Holy Spirit. And to this, the psalm says, the light dawns for the righteous. And even in the darkness... Even in a season of darkness that maybe you're experiencing right now, we can be sure that in due time, the sun's going to rise again. We can be sure that in due time, God's going to say, do it again to the sun. And so we rejoice in the Lord in all seasons. We give thanks to his holy name, for he will be faithful to finish what he started with his people. And this psalm, I am sure, was a source of comfort for the nation of Israel throughout its up and down tumultuous time as God's people in the Old Testament. A powerful reminder that they probably had to say on repeat that God is king and he is on the throne and he alone is on the throne. But I want to end this morning by retracing the steps of Psalm 97 in light of what God went on to do through Jesus Christ. Every page of the Old Testament has a side to it that is forward-looking, that is unresolved, that is anticipating something greater, the fulfillment of all the promises laid forth along the way. So not just the classic prophetic uh, verses found in like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, but every page of the Old Testament is about Jesus. That is maybe the uh, largest key and vital factor of reading the Old Testament, that all of it does not end in and of itself. It points to something greater. And that something greater we know from where we are in history is Jesus Christ. And when Psalm 97 is looked back on from the vantage point of being on this side of Christ, I think there is this strong parallel to the most anticipated arrival the world has ever seen. So after the book of Malachi was written, the final prophet of the Old Testament, over 400 years go by without an inspired word from the Lord. Silence. Darkness in the midst of anticipation. Then, in a way no one predicted, God enters the framework of his creation by sending the eternal Son to take on flesh, a light dawning in the darkness, 
to be born of a virgin and raised in a Jewish household. And after 30 years, at the age of 30, in God's perfect timing, Jesus begins his earthly ministry and starts with the bold declaration that we read in Mark 1. He comes onto the scene and he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The arrival of the long-anticipated Messiah is here, and the instatement of a new kingdom has dawned. And over the course of the next three years, Jesus just preaches the good news. He heals the sick. He challenges the religious status quo. And he pours deeply into 12 men, preparing them for what was to come, even when they didn't know it. And Jesus' teaching did what it always did and what it always still does, either softens hearts or it hardens them. People were either drawn to love him and believe in him and glorify him, or they were grew to hate him and hate his message and feel threatened by his ministry. There's an old Puritan quote that says, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. There's no staying put when it comes to Jesus and his teaching. There's no neutral gear when it comes to responding to God's word. We will either be drawn to Christ or driven from him. We will either love him or hate him. And those who hated him during his three-year ministry felt threatened by his message and finally had enough, so they killed him. They thought crucifying him by false accusations would end this little mini-movement that was starting to stir up. But a theme that is seen all over the Bible. What men and women meant for evil, God meant for good. And the very act that they thought would end it proved to be the very purpose God sent his son into the world in the first place. To atone for the sins of the world and spark a movement that has since turned the world upside down. God raised Jesus from the dead, and after appearing and ministering to his disciples as the risen Christ for 40 days, he promised that he would send the Holy Spirit in his absence. And so he ascended into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father, and it's with that backdrop and the anticipation of this Holy Spirit that I want to retrace the steps of Psalm 97. First, the Lord reigns. Christ sits on the throne. All authority has been given to him by the Father. He has conquered evil, and the cross is now the very place where death died. Let the earth rejoice. Second, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Final judgment of every person who has ever lived will be on Christ's shoulders, and his righteousness imputed unto those who put their faith in him. Third, fire goes before him. Once Christ was on the throne, he did what he promised and sent the Holy Spirit to descend onto the disciples as they're praying in the upper room. And listen to Acts 2, the way it's described. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them fire goes before him. The Spirit fills Peter especially, who is the one to come out from this upper room, and just days after he denied Christ three times, now he's the one who stands up and preaches the gospel with such boldness and truth that 3,000 believe on that first day. 
Indeed, fourth, the lightning of God's word lights up the world. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, many men and women come to put their faith in him. False gospels and counterfeit gods melt like wax before the truth of the good news. And now this message is commissioned by Christ to be taken to the whole world. No longer is this contained to one nation, but faith in Christ is open to men and women from all nations where members of every people group will proclaim his righteousness and see his glory. And so what began as a mini movement amongst dozens in the Middle East has spread to be the largest movement human history has ever seen with billions from every corner of the earth proclaiming the name of Christ over all. The Lord reigns. And finally, the call to the church now is to persevere as we continue to spread the word and make disciples of all nations. Now we have a chance to be a link in the chain. We are here today, we are gone tomorrow, but in the name of Christ, by the power of the Spirit, we can do big things. We can boast about him in the anticipation of his final arrival, the only thing we're waiting for, the second coming of Christ. And this time, he's not coming in a manger. And in the meantime, persevering in the faith by, by uh, resisting sin and evil, by sharing the good news of a dawning light in a world that is covered in darkness. And so we hate evil, and we rejoice in the Lord. And we press into his grace and mercy every single day. And we approach the throne of grace and trust that he who began a good work in us will be faithful to see it to completion. The steps of Psalm 97 retraced in the light and person and work of Jesus Christ. Powerful and yet open-ended still. Because one day Jesus is coming back. And on that day, there won't be any question about it. And that day will either be the best day or the worst day for every man or woman that has ever walked the earth. Talk about a highly anticipated arrival. Talk about an arrival that will fully instate an eternal kingdom that has no end. So church, brothers and sisters, who do you say that he is? Who is Jesus Christ to you? Is he on the throne in your life? Does he have access to every single aspect of your life and shape every area of your life? Let that be true for us. The Lord reigns. Let all the earth rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word especially a word that puts you high and lifted up on the throne. We thank you for the reminder that that is. And for every person in here, Lord, we pray that would provide assurance where somebody needs to be assured. And we also pray that that provides conviction for those of us who need to be convicted. Father, no matter where we were when we walked in this door, we can all approach you as the God who is for us, the God who sent his son to die for us. And so, Father, I pray that through repentance 
and belief that your name would be high and lifted up, not only in your word, but in our hearts. We thank you for your Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And we pray that we would walk out this door forever changed and motivated to be a part of what's going to happen in this world through your church. And that we too can play a part in doing big things. In your name we pray. Amen.